been looking through Acts, felt it was appropriate for this year, won't be a whole year doing it, just up until probably about the end of July, and we also felt it was an appropriateness with the Just 10 going on. I actually thought it was a particularly good evening on Wednesday, Just 10, felt uh, J. John was excellent. We were delighted to have a very good technical sort of situation here, it was great, it was just two mini little tiny freezes at the beginning and then it was totally uh, glitch free, which was wonderful actually. It really helped, though it's not impossible to follow it, because fortunately the stream of, lang- of the talk uh, goes unbroken, but sometimes a bit distracting, and it wasn't at all this week, and we were ver- really delighted. One or two saved here, and a, a really fairly significant number in, other, in the cathedral particularly, I think. But we, we, we actually feel a lot of business is going on. I felt very content uh, with the way things are going. Obviously discontent that we aren't seeing more saved at one level, but that, that is just the natural thing of life. As a Christian, you want to see everybody knowing Jesus. You know it's so great, and you know it's the answer. But um, laying that aside, I felt very encouraged on Wednesday, and I would encourage you to all come along to these last three and really uh, try and uh, prioritise it and bring some friends. They, I don't think, will be disappointed, and you won't be disappointed with the... Uh, the impact on them. So, we're going to now look at Acts 17. Let's start verse 16. Uh, Paul in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Could you just cut out my... I feel like my voice is a bit slight. It would help me to concentrate. Thank you. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men should seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of of this to all men by raising him from the dead. 
When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. So Athens was the intellectual capital of the ancient world. It was a blend of probably, super, we call it superstitious idolatry, but also mixed in with the arts, very creative, and also philosophy, considered enlightened philosophy. It was on the cutting edge of philosophy. Had a famous university and was considered one of, if not the, most beautiful city of that time. Full of beauty. People went to look at Athens because of the glorious carvings and all its beauty. Yet when you read this story, Paul seems unimpressed by the philosophers and the temples. He doesn't take much time doing a tourist uh, you know, tour of the beautiful carvings and the, and the temples. Actually, we're told that the first thing we hear about him is he was greatly distressed as he looked around Athens. The idolatry in the city greatly distressed him, and the word means he was deeply disturbed in his spirit, a mixture of sadness and anger. It's words that we, we find hard to translate, but he was deeply moved and upset by what he saw. Now, the city really was full of temples and full of idols. Even secular writers commented on it about Athens. One of them wrote this, It is easier to find a god than a man in Athens. So, I mean, people everywhere, there were, were images and beautiful temples. But it broke Paul's heart to see the idolatry in Athens. It broke his heart. He, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't a Philistine, he wasn't ignorant about art and beauty, but he just saw the blindness and idolatry and it just broke his heart. And I'm immediately challenged, brothers and sisters, immediately challenged, because we live in a culture not unlike first century Athens. We do have all around us idolatry. Now that might surprise some of you, think, well, we don't have much idolatry today. Oh yes, we do. Idols mean God's substitutes. They mean things other than the one true creator, the living God, that are things other than him that are worshipped, that are uh, the focus of people's lives, that they line their lives up with, that are uh, the centre of their thinking and their actions. And we are actually surrounded by idols. Idols of fame and celebrity, sex, wealth, power, food, alcohol, drugs, work, sport, TV, possessions, religion, and even church. Things that are worshipped and and, and form people's lives, but are not really God himself. And the thing that bugs me, bugs me about myself, is I don't seem to react as strongly as Paul did. Paul was not, in a sense, overwhelmed by the beauty of the place. He was distressed at its idolatry. This is the cutting edge of, of intellect. This is where all the clever people are, and look at it. They're just blind. They're just in idolatry. That's how Paul reacted. Now, we live in what we call a pluralistic society, which means all sorts of different ideas and religions are tolerated and are indeed encouraged, each one to his own, as it were. And so I think that influences us as Christians, and because we're in this culture, we pick up the sort of tenor of the culture which is when people worship something other than Jesus and other than the living God, 
that's okay. We tolerate that. We don't get too upset about it. Each to his own. That's their way. This is our way. But what you need to know is Paul lived in a pluralist society. 100%. That was the ethos. Under the broad umbrella of the Roman Empire and a, a nod to worshipping the emperor, under that broad umbrella, you can worship all sorts of gods, as they clearly did in Athens. And you're meant to listen to one and look at the other and debate it and let him be, do that and you do this. But Paul didn't feel like that. He felt Jesus is the answer for all of them. Do you see how he felt it? He felt it in his spirit. He saw something and it profoundly gave him a, a, a feeling. He felt it. He was distressed. And I said, God help us, help it to bother us. Let it bother you. I don't want you to be happy. I don't want you to think arts are just lovely. I want you to love them and sort of hate what they say sometimes. I want you to feel distressed when you watch Britain's Got Talent. Even though I do it, I watch it, I do. I'm not being all silly and puritanical and telling you not to do it. Just doesn't it disturb you when you watch the news? Doesn't it disturb you when you just think about your country? Don't you think, oh God, what's wrong with it? Oh God, we need to see you come break in. Oh God, look at people's confusion and uncertainty. They don't know where to turn. And I believe that is the chart of a true believer who has a passion. It's actually the root of real mission and real evangelism. Here's a quote from a guy called Henry Martin, who was a missionary in the early 19th century to Persia. He was in the early 19th century to Persia. He wrote, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always dishonoured. That's what drove him to go to Persia with the gospel. He, he said, it would be hell to me if Jesus is always dishonoured. I couldn't endure it if Jesus isn't glorified. That's something, you touched something there. That's something of what was going on in Paul. He felt a provocation in his spirit. And that meant he shared the good news with all sorts. We'll put up verses 17 and 18 in a moment, but I won't read it through. It's just for information. But just in those verses, you will see that he shared the gospel with Jews. This is in Athens, let alone anywhere else. Jews, God-fearing Greeks, and anyone who happened to be in the marketplace. I mean, it's really, you know, apart from the Epicureans and the Stoics, who he ended up sort of engaging with more fully. But he's, he's, he doesn't, it's not just for the Jews, it's not just for the Greeks, it's, it's anybody in the marketplace. You need to hear about Jesus. Now, actually, that sort of passion needs to drive us. It needs to drive us about life. It doesn't matter what our, we're all called to this. We're all missionaries. It needs to drive us in our daily thinking and praying. It's not about duty. It's not about driving and striving. It's about finding that passion, really. I don't think it's really about trying to fake it. That would be useless and horrible and trying to be uh, over the top. It's about inside sort of seeing things. Like Paul, he really looked and he saw it and it moved him inside. He really looked at it all. He listened to it. Like we listen at work. We watch. We don't despise. We love people. It's not despising. It's just disturbed. Oh, God. Oh, God. They're so... It's, you're the answer, Jesus. And that's what he felt. Now, he actually engaged particularly with these two, the Epicureans and the, and the Stoics. Now, interestingly enough, they were the dominant philosophic, philosophical schools in Athens at this time. 
And when you look into it, and I only looked into it as I prepared the last week or two, it is so contemporary, it's ridiculous. We think we are modern. We think we've got it all sorted out. We think all these people were silly. You will be surprised in the next couple of minutes when I summarise what these people believed and what Paul was dealing with. Very surprised, I think. First of all, the Epicureans. These are the dominant sort of attitudes, the dominant cultures at this time in Athens amongst the intellectuals. The Epicureans were materialists. They said that everything had come from lifeless atoms. Yes, even atoms. They didn't understand what we understand. They hadn't got microscopes like we had. But somehow or other, they had come up with the conclusion that everything had come from lifeless atoms and that everything was just material, no life after death. They reckoned either the gods did not exist or if the gods did exist, they were too far removed to have anything to do with mortals, therefore were irrelevant. They believed the main purpose in life was pleasure and personal tranquility. So your main object in life is to get as much pleasure as you can and be as peaceful and hassle-free as you can. Sounds pretty contemporary to me. Then the Stoics, and that's another strand of contemporary thinking. The Stoics stressed the importance of reason. Ha-ha, everything is, can be sorted out with your mind. And this was the principle of the universe, reason. It's what structured the universe. It was how, therefore, men and women ought to live. Actually, from a religious point of view, they were pantheists. They believed that the natural world was divine. Another strand of modern thinking. It's the natural world where God is. It's all in there. That's, that's God, the natural world, divine. And actually, for human behaviour, they taught the importance of self-sufficiency, do it your way, sort it out, use your mind, set, thought, do it your way, courage and duty. Self-sufficiency, courage and duty. Use your mind, be tough, and uh, sort things out that way. Does that not sound contemporary? It does to me. If you put those together, you've got something very similar to the culture we're dealing with. Now, look at their first reaction, because this is similar as well. The first reaction to Paul is, what is this babbler trying to say? Look, did you see it? It's quite snooty, isn't it? What is this babbler trying to say? Now, it's even worse than it reads in English, because babbler for us sort of sounds like he talks a lot. It wasn't about him talking a lot. The word that's translated babbler is actually seed pecker. And basically, what it means is a scavenging bird that has no ideas of his own is just picking up rubbish wherever he finds it might be more like, what is this bird brain twittering on about? might be a bit more accurate. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, what an airhead. That's what they were saying. They were saying, what an airhead, what a wally. What is this bird brain twittering on about? That's contempt, utter contempt. Snobbery, intellectual snobbery and scorn for that viewpoint. Now, I would say to you, that's not an attitude unknown to us today. Evangelical, Bible-believing Christians who talk about Jesus and the resurrection will find a reaction not dissimilar to that. Come on, get a brain, get a life. Don't we all know it's evolved from chance? <laughs> yeah, come on. Aren't you, don't you, do you have any science at school? What's the matter with you? You know, what is it? Would you come out of the Dark Ages, still stuck in the Victorian age? You know, whatever you like. Bird brain, <laughs> airhead. I mean, actually, that is what they were saying. It was pretty scornful 
and rude. And what really set them off was when he said, it says, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Wow! You can't avoid it. They don't like it. But when they get it, they do like it. But you know what I mean? You're not going to get, you're not going to get plaudits for talking about Jesus and the resurrection. But that's what you've got to get to. That's what Paul got to. He began to talk about Jesus. The good news, he wasn't, he wasn't just telling them they were sinners. He wasn't rubbishing them. That's not what upset them. It wasn't a row. It's when he started talking about the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, they said bird brain, airhead, brainless twittering. And actually, sometimes we have to put up with that. But it's still important we tell people about Jesus. Now, what they actually did was they took him to the Arapagus, to Mars Hill. Now, it sounds a little heavy, and it probably was pretty intimidating, to be honest. But actually, it wasn't like a court so much, or it was a sort of, it was a sort of philosopher's court. He wasn't going to get put in prison or persecuted, but they were going to assess his teaching and decide if it was worth recognition. So this was, is it politically correct in our language? Are we going to give this a little corner somewhere in Athens? Are we going to allow this one to have a little temple over here with his own little statue? Just like we're condescended to. Will we allow you just to carry on? It was almost that sort of level, I think. It was like, is this even worth giving uh, house room to? But for Paul, he saw this as an opportunity to engage with them and tell them about Jesus. And he would take any opportunity to do that. And he does it here. And I think it's a great example of courage and dedication to sharing the gospel. It would have been intellectually pretty intimidating. But I believe Paul gives a masterclass in real contextualization without losing clarity of the truth. And we've got to learn that as well. Because that's exactly what he did. Paul does contextualize the gospel. It's clearly a very different presentation to what he gives in the synagogues. He used their sort of wit. I observe that you are all very religious. I mean, he starts in a sort of, sort of witty, polite way in a sort of, uh, uh, classic probably style. He knew that they were searching and that they hadn't found God, so he actually engaged about their search for God. And in doing that, he presented Bible ideas, but through concepts that they would be familiar with, such as, The gods need nothing from mankind, which is what the Epicureans said. So he said, well, God obviously doesn't need anything from men, or the God is the source of, the divine is the source of all life, the Stoics said. And he got hold of that and said, well, God is the one who's made all things and given us life. He uses material that his audience would recognize and probably would respect. In verse 28, he quotes two Greek poets, one of whom is a Stoic. And he doesn't use Old Testament quotations, as he clearly does when he's speaking to the Jews. So he's intelligent about it. He's sensible. He picks up ideas and concepts that are familiar to his audience and says he's going to show them how Jesus is the answer to what, what their society is looking for. Jesus is the answer to the things that are restlessly driving many of their poets and others. But you could say, doesn't he compromise? I mean, some... Um, some commentators say, well, did he compromise? I don't think he compromised at all. He gets right through to Jesus. He avoids the main trap of contextualization, and I'm going to use another long word here, which is syncretism. Now, syncretism is when you fuse together all different religions and ideas. 
and you say, well, we're all sort of finding our own path and here's a bit about Jesus and you can fit that in with all these other things you believe. Sadly, that is very easy to do and contextualization often ends up at syncretism. It really does and we need to be really careful. And I'll tell you how we're careful, by keeping clearly to the gospel about Jesus. Because Paul always gets back to that. He always gets back to Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. If we don't do that, you do end up with a sort of blending together sometimes that fuzzes the gospel and fuzzes the edges. Yeah, we're all talking about spirituality and we're all talking about God and we're all, all seeking after this. And, we're, and it's not wrong to talk like that, but in the end, you've got to get to Jesus, haven't you? And that's, that's the bit where the rubber hits the road, as we'll see in a few minutes. So he avoids that trap. He basically addresses three areas, and I'm not going to spend any length of time on them, just highlight them as almost headlines, that I think are very relevant to us in our society today. Very three, very simple areas where he brings distinctive Christian truth. The first one is the origin of life. He actually brings in that there is a creator, a personal creator, who made us and who you can know. And I think that's a wonderful, important truth for modern Britain to know. People need to know that. Remember, the Epicureans were saying something very contemporary to us, that life came from a bunch of lifeless atoms. But the questions that, they, that, that were asked of them, actually, in, in debate, can be asked today. How can lifeless atoms produce living beings? How can you get mind from matter? That is a question that people cannot answer today. We need to ask it. How do you get mind from matter? How do you get something no more alive than the wood I'm standing on and you emerge from it? How do you, oh, in fact, it's less than that. How do you get mind from, it's a big question, it needs answering. You can't. And I tell you, in our day and age, there is a weight of evidence scientifically for intentional design. That is that we were made. There is a God who made us. God exists, said Paul, and he made us all from one source and one man. And that's an interesting one. Because modern genetics, some of you might have been watching that Dr. Alice Roberts program on the human journey late on a Sunday evening. I watched, Mary and I watched it. And you're interesting as a Christian, you're thinking and watching it. But actually, one of the things genetics is showing is that every human being on the planet today seems to come from a very, very small source. Very small She's she's talking totally without any reference to God about a small group of Africans who came out of Africa across sort of the Red Sea area, round through the Persian Gulf. And for a variety of reasons, is tracing everybody back there. It's very interesting. In China, which obviously is an atheistic regime and has been for, for decades with its communist roots, They have found skulls and things, and the Chinese have had a very well-worked-out theory of evolution that Chinese people evolved separately from the rest of us. And they've used skull shapes and their eyes and all the rest of it. You can understand it. And they have got these skulls they found. I won't bore you with the details, but they basically are saying, and have said for decades, that that the Chinese evolved, you know, from a separate lot of monkeys, like from a separate lot from us. Now, logically, you think, well, if you believed in that stuff, maybe that's right. What's interesting is that modern genetics, as that program showed, showed that Chinese people have the same genetic origins as we have. Now, according to Dr. Alice Roberts, we all come from Africans, which might be true. But what is fascinating is if you're a Christian, I also believe we all come from a similar origin, don't you? 
I mean, I saw a program on this several years ago, maybe 10 years ago, called Daughters of Eve, a Horizon program on television. And it was about the genetic tests they'd done on a number of women worldwide, thousands of women. It was the early days of genetics, I guess, relatively. And they'd found that all the women they tested worldwide had the same ancestor. They all had a common female ancestor somewhere. Fascinating, isn't it? whole program was called Daughters of Eve. wasn't one reference to God, one reference to the Bible, except in the title. And then Eve was some African woman who'd evolved from a monkey. That was the last ten minutes. Now, actually, I think we have a very strong case for a biblical view of the world. There is a God, an intelligent designer. He made us all from one source. That's what Paul said. He talked about the meaning of life. Must be quick, because I enjoy these things. Talked about the meaning of life not just the origin. The Stoics said it's all about duty. The Epicureans said it's all about pleasure. Paul says neither of these things are worthy of God's offspring. They're not worthy of people made in the image of God. We are created to seek God. We are created to know God. God wants a relationship with every one of you. It's much, much better and higher than just your pleasure or just your duty. The purpose in life is to find God or God to find you and to find your home with him. That's much more elevated. That's what Paul's message was to them. It's not just about pleasure. It's not just about duty. There's a God who's looking for you as you look for him. And he's not far from any one of us. And you can find him and know him. Restoration of relationship with the creator is there for those that reach out for him. He uses that phrase. And that is your goal in life to know God and to know him properly and personally. And it's an achievable goal through Jesus Christ. You can know God. I know God through Jesus. I do. I know God speaks to me. I know God's with me. It's wonderful. That can give your whole life a different perspective. It it gives purpose and security and direction. There is a meaning. There is a purpose. It's found in God. And then the third thing he addresses is the end of life. What happens when we die or after we die? He talks about the origins, the meaning and the end. They're the basic three things he addresses relevant to that society and to ours. He takes on their materialism, their widely held view, which was widely held by them, that when you die, that's it, it's over, there's nothing else. You're just materialist, material. No, says Paul, after death, you will face judgment. You'll face the God who made you. You are accountable to a God who made you. There's two sides to a coin here. You're precious, but that means God won't just let you go. He wants to know what's happened to you. Two sides to another coin. You have freedom, but with freedom goes responsibility and judgment. That was true for the Greeks to hear, because they were big on freedom, and it's true for our society to hear. Freedom is great, but you also, you make choices, but you're answerable for your choices to God. You're accountable for your choices to God. And Paul brings that sober clarity to what he says. It's the unfashionable bit. It's when they get restless. He talks of Jesus, meeting Jesus when you die, and giving an account to the man who God has raised from the dead. Jesus Christ, risen and exalted, will be the one we will all bow the knee to one day. Every last one of us will see Jesus one day. Now, will that be a delight to you or a horror 
you will decide that even this morning because you can know him as your friend and saviour right now. But one day we'll all meet him. One day we'll all see Jesus. It's wonderful and it's also sort of scary too. And this is the crunch point that Paul comes to as he talks about who Jesus is and what he's done. And you can see it in verses 32 and to 34. This is where the changes happen. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again. And, and a few became believers and followed him. I don't think Paul would see them as his followers, but you know that, we know what that means. They, they followed after Paul, including one member, one member of this elite intellectual circle, the Arapagus. One of them, Dionysius, he followed after Jesus and became part of the church that I presume was ultimately planted in Athens. Now that's relevant to us as well. It's sort of encouraging, isn't it? (laughs) They didn't all suddenly have revival, but some of them believed. And a few of them followed. Some said, well, we'd like to hear a bit more. They didn't totally dismiss it. And some sneered and said, what rubbish. That's sort of how we find things. But we must be encouraged and press on in our modern Athens, if you like. And there's lots of lessons for us, really. We need to understand the culture around us and engage with people. But we also need to be able to bring Jesus to people. It must end in Jesus or it's no point. There are gospel pointers all around us in secular culture. I believe we should ask people in modern Britain, we should ask people in Winchester these sort of questions (laughs) in our own way. Why is it we feel so empty when we have so much? Why are so many people depressed and empty when we have more than any people in history have ever had? We have more luxury, more health, more going for us than anybody on the planet ever has. We really, really have. And yet we seem so empty and so dissatisfied. We all pick that up. We need to address that. Why is it that chasing pleasure leaves people so unsatisfied. (laughs) We ought to ask those questions and think about them. What is the purpose of life? We need to big it up, what it is in God. Why are, we could ask today, so many people untrustworthy and corrupt? Why have we gone through this whole thing of the bankers and the MPs? Why is it it seems like nobody can be trusted? Nobody can be honest? Well, you could say, people might say, well, hasn't it always been like that? Maybe it has a bit. But I think it probably has, of course. But, but actually, hasn't it got worse? Haven't we lost something? Yes, we have, I would answer. <laughs> we have gone a long way from any sense of moral right and wrong in an individual's life. This is another subject that could take me a long time, and I'm not going to let it, by God's grace, I'm not going to let it do it. But we need to understand our culture. We do need to understand it. Today, it's all about compliance, not morality. Do I comply with the rules? The only morality left is, is it legal or not? Is it in the rules or not? So politician after politician, I kept within the rules, I kept within the rules. Once upon a time, you didn't think like that, you think you must be honest. If you've taken, come out of the shop and they've given you too much change, you take it back. I was taught that. I know people who aren't Christians who used to do that. I remember them. You're just honest. You can be trusted with a child. You can be trusted with another woman. You can be trusted because there is an honesty, because not because you're a holy person, but the worldview, the culture was that there are morality. There's morality. 
You don't just need rules. You don't, you don't have to say, well, you know, unless it's against the rules, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need a rule to tell me not to use my mobile. You just need to be a responsible driver and be careful you don't hit people and not drive too fast. Is it legal or not? Oh, it's legal if I put it in here and do that. Look, actually drive safely and don't distract yourself, you wally. You don't need a load of rules. Why do we need rules for everything? Because we've lost it. We haven't understood morality. Morality isn't about rules, it's about something in here. It's a worldview. Things are right and things are wrong. Now you work that out, of course you need laws. This is a huge subject. I've attempted back up, back job. I'm backing up. Back up, back up. But we need to understand our culture about compliance and rules. We need to dig into these subjects with people because people have lost something about what? About God and absolutes and right and wrong and honesty and integrity and trustworthiness. It's just, is it compliant with the rules? Does it meet the targets or doesn't it? Below the targets, are you making the person well? You know, and actually, in the end, we've lost something massive because we've said there's no right and wrong. There's no right. So what are we left with? Compliance with the rules. And who makes the rules? Well, look at them. And now, yeah, it's a big subject. Let's get into it. And let's talk about God's way, which is sin, bluntly. Wrong and right. Sin, forgiveness, restoration, healing, new heart, change from the inside. Whoa, loads of stuff. <laughs> Paul always gets back to Jesus. Let's finish towards, towards our end. Here's three verses, just skip, scattered almost through this chapter. When he's talking to the Jews, Acts 17, verse 3, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. So with the Jews, he gets round to it. Verse 18, we've already read. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That seems to be in the marketplace. It seems to be out there amongst the marketplace. So he's to the Jews in the synagogue, it's Jesus. Out in the marketplace, it's Jesus. And then at the Areopagus, where he's more formally talking to the philosophers. Verse 31, he's talking about Jesus. He has, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man, that's Jesus, he's appointed, he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So wherever he is, he gets to Jesus, doesn't he? He always gets to Jesus. <laughs> it's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. It's not even about church, it's about Jesus. It's not about religion. And it's not about morality, really. Only there's a road to understand what's wrong with us. It's about Jesus changing your heart, risen from the dead. You can see I enjoy this sort of stuff. It's really fascinating. They had two goddesses that they worshipped in a sort of intellectual way, these, this lot, particularly Epicureans and Stoics. One was called chance and the other was called necessity. And actually, it is utterly contemporary to modern Britain. They were torn between these two goddesses. It's really to do with an intellectual idea. And the intellectual idea is there today. People ask, are we ruled by chance or by determinism? Exactly the same question 2,000 years later without God. Is it all chance? Is it all blind chance? And chance was blind, she was blind. Is it all blind chance or is it determinism? Am I merely a product of my genes? Am I merely a product of of society. And people tussle. Is it one or is it the other? We have an answer like Paul did. We cut right through it like Paul did. And we say there's a revelation from heaven. And here it is, John 3 verse 16. 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's the answer. There is a God who made you and he loves you. You can know him because he's done something to get rid of the barrier of your failure and sin that blocked you off from knowing this holy, gracious God. Through his son Jesus, you can know him now and for eternity. You are not the blind product of chance, the product of blind chance. You are not determined merely by your genes. We are not ruled by these two goddesses now and we weren't then. There is a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven and he loves you and you can know him. Today, our society is just like this. Strong on analysis, but weak on meaning and purpose. There's lots and lots of teaching on human origins, but an awkward silence about human destiny. A lot of modern thought is split between a quest for unobtainable objectivity, on one hand, and a morass of subjective feeling, on the other hand. And the gospel cuts right through the whole lot. All the things, there's a different answer. We run a different path. We don't blend in with either. We, we understand the culture. We need to engage with the questions people are asking. But the answer comes right out of heaven. It's a different answer. It's a different answer. And we need to be excited about it, enjoy it, and go for it. God's broken down the, the barrier between the spiritual and the physical. Jesus did it when he was born at Calvary. The God who makes all things has been revealed to us as a man born in Bethlehem, the teaching, the manner of life, healing, the grace. It showed the heart of God. He was crucified at Calvary. He rose again on the third day, physically rose again. And everything has changed since that day. Everything is different. He's the firstborn of a new creation, a new sort of people. God can be reconciled to man. Good news for all men, as the angels sang. And it's for all men and women, Jews, Greeks, philosophers, clever, stupid, you know, whatever we are. There is hope in Jesus Christ. It's the only hope for a society in decline. Interesting enough, this society was in decline. Obviously, the Romans were the power, world power. Greece had been once, a bit like us, we're useless now. Once upon a time, we had an empire, now it's all America and everything else. And it's a bit like that, really. And they were clinging on to their sort of arrogance and their aloof philosophy, but basically they were nobodies. Compared to the Romans, they could smash them up any time they wanted to. Like, we're dependent on the, whatever they are. Are they Americans? For everything, aren't we? Nuclear weapons. Can we have one of some of your fighters? Can we have some of your bombs? You know, we're nothing, really. And that's what happened to Greece. But they were still proud of all their ideas. And actually, they were, the Romans were a bit, <laughs> a bit thick, really. But we know, we know it's a chance, necessity. Oh, who knows? Well, actually, that's like us over here, isn't it? And we need the gospel as well just like they did. Actually, they were the barbarians were at the door. Greece was on the wane. It was all going to collapse in confusion and violence. We're in a similar position. We are rocking and shaking. The bank thing showed it, the credit crunch. Other things show it. Islam's rise show it. It's all rocking and shaking. The days of being able to sit there, having your ideas, listening to every new idea, those will be numbered. But Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to modern Britain, just as he was to ancient Greece. Let's stand together.
Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We haven't time for much more than to pray, but let's do it. Let's pray. Just feel as, I, as we do. Let's just stand for it. Let me bring you a word of encouragement, Christian brothers and sisters. This was a small thing here in Athens. And when you read these stories, it's only a handful of people starting at Ephesus. It's only a handful in Corinth and in Philippi. But actually, from these seeds grew mighty churches that influenced the world. Now, I'm not looking for world influence, but I am looking for this wonderful, wonderful principle that the few seeds that have got God's water on them will grow to mighty plants. A little mustard seed can become the biggest of all trees because it's where God is working that counts. And as Paul walked out of that Arapagus with a handful of followers, there was the seeds of something magnificent over the next 2,000 years going out with him because that's where God was at. And I want you to be encouraged this morning. Lord, we come to you feeling sometimes a tiny minority, even in modern Britain, feeling a bit overwhelmed by the intellectual prowess of many who dominate our our universities, our media. Lord, feeling a bit imposed by the materialistic temples of shopping when we take our few handful of cars home and pass thousands and thousands of people worshipping at the temples of shopping all around us and and perhaps worshipping the sun if it was a fine day. (laughs) Lord, we realise so few really seem to be following you. And yet, Lord, we know that you are the answer to our nation and to our culture. Oh, Lord, give us a boldness. Give us a courage. Give us opportunities like people take. And then help us to take the opportunities to speak about you to anyone and everyone. Lord, help us. Even as we come towards the last few weeks of Just Ten, may we see many more saved in Just Ten. Many more. May people come to know you in Winchester in the next four weeks, more than in any of the previous six or seven. I ask you, Lord, to have mercy on our time and our generation. Open people's eyes to their blindness and hopelessness. Touch their hearts, Lord, and bring them into your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.